Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. We all have fantasies about what the world should look like, and sometimes we're right, but sometimes we're wrong. Art allows us to pretend, to construct a vision of the world that is absolutely perfect, whether or not that's a good idea. When we talk about artistic styles, they can all be lumped into three main categories. Naturalism, abstraction, and idealism. Naturalism is when art looks like the real thing. Those sculptures of people that sometimes show up on park benches or city sidewalks, for example, that look as though a local person got turned into bronze by a passing sorcerer, right? Those, those end up being uh, very naturalistic. Paintings that are meant to fool your eye into thinking that a sidewalk is a window into another world, or that a cliff face is actually a tunnel. Uh, I'm reminded of the comic who said, with some truth, that it's a pity everyone remembers the Looney Tunes Roadrunner for his speed and not his artistic ability. Fairy tales love this kind of art, and so do street performers. Naturalism is when things look real. That, of course, leads to the question, why not call it realism then? Well, the reason we don't call it realism is because once upon a time in the 19th century, a man named Gustave Courbet got tired of all the great, big, beautiful history paintings that wealthy government officials liked to see, and that artists who liked making money kept on painting. He decided to paint the world as it really was and to paint ordinary people and ordinary moments with as much care and monumentality as if they were the most dramatic part of some great legend. Other artists soon joined in. People like Edward Manet and Honoré Daumier all started stripping away the illusions of what artists were painting for their wealthy patrons and instead painted the reality of what they saw. They called this new style of painting, guess what? Realism. As a result, art historians don't use the word realism when we're talking about art that looks real, even if that's the most common sense word to use. We use the word naturalism instead, unless we decide to call something photorealistic, which means, of course, something that looks so naturalistic it might as well be a photograph. Naturalism isn't actually all that easy to paint or to sculpt, so the vast majority of paintings and sculptures are abstract instead. If you've ever said, all I can draw are stick figures, you are a master of abstraction. Children's paintings and drawings? Abstraction. Abstraction is all about emphasizing the important parts and ignoring all the unimportant parts, whatever you may consider to be important or unimportant. And that changes by culture and by time period and by personal preference. One of the most common types of abstraction in historical art is what we call expository abstraction. And if you ever had to write an expository essay, it's about the same thing, just applied to pictures. Just about everyone is familiar, for example, with the Egyptian relief sculpture that looks like uh, the head is going one way, the shoulders are facing forward, the arms and legs are all akimbo and looking weird, and it is awfully uncomfortable to stand that way, right? Uh, if you're not familiar with that, go watch The Mummy with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, because it's my favorite version. Uh, but, you know, they do a good job of showing you some of the art and, uh, 
especially of ancient Egypt and what it might have looked like once upon a time and long ago. But we were talking about expository abstraction. The point of expository abstraction is to show you every identifying feature, both arms, both legs, both shoulders, right? And then, of course, if you're showing a person, the profile, because the profile is the easiest way to identify a person. A person looking at you straight on, uh, it's really hard to make that look individual. Most people have two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. But the way that your profile works, the line between your forehead and your nose and your chin and how they all relate to each other, that's usually pretty individualistic. Uh, side note, that's actually one of the reasons why the three-quarter portrait is the most effective. It both shows you the pretty of the full face and gives you the idea of communication that a frontal uh, portrait gives because, of course, looking at someone is how you communicate with them, right? Uh, so it allows you to have this illusion of communicating with someone, but it also shows you enough of the profile that you get a bit of individualization. All right, so uh, abstraction. Some styles of modern and contemporary art take abstraction to the absolutely nth degree. That's actually what they're trying to do. Often because they're exploring different ideas about the techniques of art making and the underlying constructs of art as a whole. Abstract expressionism, for example, which is, uh, well, if you take a look at Jackson Pollock's Autumn Rhythm, it's a whole bunch of paint splattered all over a canvas in nifty patterns of organic foof. Uh, well, He's exploring something specific about emotion and uh, how action engages with art making. Uh, so it's a different kind of thing that he's looking at. He's not communicating what traditional art communicated. Um, so anyway, abstraction can be a little bit difficult to get at because you have to actually understand what is being abstracted and why, uh, which can get really, really fun. All right, but on the other end of the scale, uh, which is the main focus for today, is idealism. And that means exactly what it sounds like. We see examples of idealism all over the place, most obviously in media and entertainment. Photoshopped celebrities, Plastic surgery beauties, those are just the latest iterations, or the, I would say victims, of a tradition that goes back millennia. No, seriously, it goes back thousands of years. Let's start off with ancient Greece and our favorite philosopher, Plato. Not Plato, Plato, right? P-L-A-T-O. Uh, he is one of the most influential social theorists ever, in the Western world, probably because all he ever did was think about how society works and what would make society even better. Between him and his teacher Socrates, they came up with a way of explaining the ideal that would be influential for over a thousand years. We call this definition of the ideal the Platonic ideal for 
obvious reasons, and you will find it popping up again and again if you ever decide to study the ancient world. You'll find the Platonic ideal, you'll find Neoplatonism, and you'll find Neoplatonism again. Uh, it first surfaces in the Roman Empire, and then it resurfaces again during the Renaissance. According to Socrates and Plato and the Athenian Philosophy Club of the 5th century BC, every opinion that we have is derived from something that we have already experienced. If we have never experienced something, it is impossible for us to develop an opinion about it. A baby, for example, will overreact to every physical sensation because it has no experience to help it differentiate between I scratched myself with these weird things called fingernails and hey, it's been 20 minutes and I'm hungry again. It just knows that there's pain involved and so it squalls to get its mother's attention so she will fix it. And then, of course, he doesn't believe you when you tell him to eat something already because he's hungry, and that leads to a whole, well, uh, never mind, that's another story. The point is that we gain opinions through experience. But there are some things that we haven't experienced before, at least not that anyone knows, but we still end up having pretty strong opinions. Beauty, for example. Babies respond more positively to people with symmetrical features and balanced proportions than they do to others. It's ingrained. Plato would say that it's because those babies already have some conception of the ideal face, the perfect face, that perfect divine aesthetic, and they will react more positively the closer someone comes to mirroring that divine ideal. This is the way the platonic ideal works. Think about your favorite place to sit, or all the kinds of things to sit on that you have in your house. Why do you sit on a chair and not on a table? Or do you sit on the table whenever you think you can get away with it, like I have been known to do? What is the difference between the two? There are many, many pieces of furniture that can be used as a thing to sit on, and some of them are even chairs. According to the Platonic ideal, everything that you could possibly use to sit on reflects, in some way, an ideal chair. The perfect, once-in-a-lifetime, absolute chair. This perfect, ideal thing to sit on that we call a chair does exist in the mind of God from which everything emanates. The same holds true for all physical beings and objects, from houses and furniture to plants and animals and people. This led to a bit of a quandary in classical art, and the question about art's value in society. On the one hand, paintings and sculptures are copies of living things, as living things are themselves imperfect copies of the divine ideal, any painting, say, is going to be a imperfect copy of an imperfect copy and therefore twice removed from the mind of God and therefore a complete waste of time. Uh, this is said by most people who don't like art for whatever reason they decide not to like art. The other theory is, of course, more popular. This theory says that the creative mind of the artist may be connected to the mind of God through divine inspiration. Under that influence, the artist may actually be able to create an image of 
whatever object, tree or flower or mountain or person, that is actually closer to the perfect ideal of that tree or flower or mountain or person that the physical manifestation merely copies. In this philosophy, art permits us to see more clearly into the divine realm and gives us a goal, a glimpse of the kind of world and the kind of person we want to become. There's an interesting thing that happens when artists start playing around with this concept of the ideal and how to depict it. Everything starts looking the same. Just like you can always tell when a painting is from ancient Egypt, or is meant to look like it came from ancient Egypt, you can always tell a sculpture from classical Greece. The people will all have the same serene, impassive expression, the same perfectly balanced proportions, the men will all be perfectly muscled in line with whatever their profession is, the women all perfectly dressed in accordance with their status in life. You'll notice the same thing in Renaissance art. Everyone, unless it's a portrait, starts looking the same, and in Baroque art, too. Whatever the ideal is during a particular time and place, everyone strives to match it, which is one reason why we can classify art for into different cultural or historical styles. Now, usually, artists put their own spin on the standard ideal, whatever that may be. They flavor it up with their own preferences of light and shadow, or brush technique, or styles of and types of physiognomy. Uh, Michelangelo, for example, he liked his people to be large and monumental. He was a sculptor. He liked monumental big stuff. And so even his paintings have that sense of weight and monumentality to them. Mary Cassatt's paintings, on the other hand, are almost invariably intimate, softly blending colors and light and brush strokes and into a very different and distinctive um, style within her school. She's actually an Impressionist. Now, sometimes artists go to a good deal of trouble to erase any kind of individuality from their artwork. We see this a lot in animation uh, and graphic novels, for example. Uh, anime, which of course got its start in Japan, is a style of art that just about everyone hopefully recognizes, particularly with the popular movies that Studio Ghibli produces. Everyone knows what anime looks like, and there are dozens of books that promise to teach you all about how to draw it. And some of them are better than others, but you know, they'll all work. They'll show you exactly how to draw a particular character or a particular animal, or a particular what-have-you. Interestingly, a lot of anime idealizes its characters, and they all look so much alike that the only way to tell them apart is to look at their accessories, or sometimes their hair. Anyway, uh, the idealization and the exaggerated features of some anime characters start doing an interesting thing. They start going into abstraction again. Right? So we've got these characters that you can learn how to draw by a certain uh, proportion of ovals and egg shapes and uh, various lines, and if you do it just right, you will precisely copy such and such a character, totally effacing your own personal spin on it, right? Uh, this style of art, or this kind of art, we actually call stylization. Stylization, generally speaking, is when art is distilled down into simple forms that can be easily and relatively cheaply copied and then mass-produced. 
There are lots of artistic movements that take advantage of this technique. Art Nouveau, Art Deco, Pop Art, Graphic Novels. They all take an idealized image and they distill it, abstract it into simple forms that are easy to copy and hopefully equally easy to read. Now, there's always a problem when you are surrounded by art that depicts some social hive mind's concept of a perfect, ideal, divine world that has been stripped of all unnecessary features, right? Things that might make you see somebody as an individual, the little imperfections that show up in, for example, naturalism. What happens when you look in the mirror? and see yourself in all of your natural glory. Unless your physiognomy is perfectly in line with that social hive mind construct of a perfect ideal divine world and perfect ideal divine people, you're going to come up short. And since DNA and mother nature are messy, everyone is going to come up short. But who wants to admit that the perfect world society's hive mind has constructed might not be perfect after all? Sometimes, all too often, instead of ditching these unrealistic expectations of what people ought to look like or act like, people go to great lengths to turn themselves into art objects so that they too can be part of this fantastical dream world that may or may not exist in the mind of God. Uh, you will notice a lot of my own bias here. Yes, I clearly prefer people in their natural state. I think you're gorgeous no matter what you look like. So, you know, stop freaking out about what some artist in working on a computer in Photoshop wants you to believe about beauty. You are fabulous. Okay. Anyway, back to um, our discussion of the hive mind and what we end up doing to ourselves as a result. Well, we all know what we do as a result, right? At our worst. We carve our bones and stretch our skin when it gets too loose, turning our bodies into organic meat and skin sculptures, and then we cover ourselves in colored pigment so that we look like a painted statue come to life. We starve ourselves and exercise like mad and we call it health, but sometimes it isn't health we're after, but that beautiful, perfectly aesthetic ideal that has just enough individuality to keep it us. Art is a powerful weapon. Perhaps its greatest power lies in its ability to make us forget that what we're seeing is fantasy, and that because it is a fantasy, we can change it. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening. <laughs>